All right, so Isaiah 50, verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Right? He's talking to the people who feel like, oh, God has abandoned us. Right? God, God just is letting us down. He says, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Uh, behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. He says, basically, you act as if I ran out on you. And that's not how it worked. You know, things, uh, people, we like to say that things happen for a reason, right? I've come to learn that uh, sometimes the reason is that I'm stupid and I make bad decisions, right? Sometimes that's the reason the thing happened. We like to blame other people. We like to blame God. God, you know, let me down or for, you know, forsook me or whatever, uh, when in reality, we made bad decisions that led us there. And that's exactly what happened with Judah. He says, you feel abandoned, but you are the one that abandoned me. You turned your back on me. But he uses uh, some interesting imagery here. He says, uh, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? He says, I didn't divorce you. Now he's talking to Judah, but did you know that God... He says elsewhere that he did divorce someone, that God went through a divorce. In Jeremiah chapter 3, we're going to read a few things here. Because that word divorce, it's a really, you know, it's a word that we're used to now, right? We hear it all the time. Uh, and, and people throw around like really bad statistics about it. Like they say, 50% um, of all marriages end in divorce. Have you heard that one? The real statistic is that 50% of all marriages that end, end in divorce. What are the other 50%? Nobody knows. When people die, right? right? It's not that half of all people that get married get divorced. It's that half of the marriages that end, end in divorce. But anyway... Divorce is a word that we've just kind of gotten used to. In the Hebrew, it's, a, it's got some teeth to it. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it means to rip flesh, to tear flesh apart. Not to cut, but imagine like grabbing a pair of pliers, grabbing onto my, you know, your love handle, if you got one, and just ripping some flesh off. Right? That's what that word is. And it's a self-inflicted wound. That's, that's what the word is at its core. Now, I'm not saying that every divorce is always just one person's fault or anything like that. But it is, you know, the, the Bible tells us when two people are married, the two, two become one, right? And divorce is the one being torn apart. The Bible tells us that, there, that God actually went through something like a divorce. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, uh, we'll read 8 through 10 here. It says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Like she was cheating on me. 
And by that, he means she was worshiping other gods, right? Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah, which is the nation that Isaiah is in, did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. So basically, God was warning Judah. He says, look, I already basically parted ways with your neighbors to the north. Remember, this is a period in time when Israel is actually two different countries. It's split into two. And so there's a northern kingdom of Israel or Samaria and a southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is. And so Isaiah is in Judah. So prior to Isaiah writing all this stuff, the people in Israel or Samaria have already been taken captive by the Assyrians. And if you've been with us through this whole study in Isaiah, you know we spent a lot of time talking about the Assyrians. They were the big bad guys at the time. And so uh, because of their idolatry, God allowed them to be taken uh, captive by the Assyrians. He punished them, and, and he illustrates that punishment by saying he divorced Israel, right? And he sent them away. It, was, it hurt him to, to split apart from them. But even though that had happened, the people in Judah felt like, oh, well, of course it happened to them, but it'll never happen to us, right? You know, even though we're doing the same things. So even given that example of Israel's you know, divorce, if you want to call it that, Judah remained unfaithful. Right? They were worshiping other gods. And they basically dared God to, to mete out a similar punishment on them. And so God, he had just cause, right? He, that was one, that's one thing. Um, you know, he, he hates divorce, but the one basically out that he gives is for adultery. And he had just cause, right? You've been cheating, He's a faithful husband with an unfaithful wife. Earlier in that chapter, in Jeremiah 3, verse 1, it says, If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Right? He asks this question, which he's going to answer later in the chapter. But he's asking this question because according to the law, no, he should not return to her again. In Deuteronomy 24, we're not going to read all of it, but there's, that's where you find the, the Old Testament laws on divorce. And all of those laws were there because basically what was happening is the Jews knew that, okay, when we get married, we're married till death do us part, right? And when you got a spouse that you really didn't like, what option did you have, right? You smashed their head with a rock, basically. And so Moses was like, we've got to come up with something other than that. And, and that's what they came up with was a, a, a system of divorce. Uh, and so the, under that system, it said that a divorced man was not to remarry the same woman. Because by getting divorced, you said that there is no way we can work this out. And then you get remarried. Well, obviously there was a way, right? Uh, the whole point was to make people think about marriage more seriously. You know? uh, but, so according to God's metaphor that he, he lays out for them, Israel is in a pretty hopeless situation. Right? They've cheated on him. 
He has every right to divorce them, to, to, to part ways. And according to the law, she can never be accepted back. But then there's a surprising little twist. God's mercy intervenes. In Jeremiah 3, verse 12, he says, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. So in the same chapter, in the same passage where God sets up the scenario that it's hopeless for you, right? Under the law, there's no way that we can ever be together again. He invites them to return. He says, you know what? I can get past this. I'm inviting you to return to me. And he promises that uh, his anger will end. So his love is, is stronger than their rebellion, basically. And then, he, and then he doubles down on his invitation. You could spend a lot of time in that, that chapter. But three more times in Jeremiah 3, he, he invites them to return to him. He says, even though you brought all this destruction into our lives, I'm still asking you to return. There's another uh, book in the Old Testament that I love. I've preached it twice. Uh, it's one of my favorites. But Hosea... Uh, in Hosea, God actually commanded this guy, Hosea, to marry a prostitute. And, of course, she didn't remain faithful to Hosea. And then while his, life, or while his wife was living a life of immorality, she leaves him and she basically gets put back into sex slavery or into bondage. Uh, God commands Hosea to go find her and to buy her back, to pay whatever the price is. To redeem her. And he did all this to, you know, paint a picture for us. Hosea's grace toward his unfaithful wife is a model of God's grace toward his unfaithful people. Even though we cheat on him, he would go to the ends of the earth and pay any price for us. And so Israel had been chosen and loved by God, and they were unfaithful to him by way of idolatry. And in Jeremiah 3, God gave them you know, a, a bill of divorcement, he says. But then he, he pleads for them to come back. Then in Hosea, God pursues and, and redeems his estranged wife. Right, That's the whole imagery there. Uh, and continues his relationship with her. And so both of those stories are there for, for you know, those were real things that happened to real people, but God was using them to paint a picture for us of how he deals with us. His, his love is strong and unending um, with his people. So he says, how can a divorced wife return and be restored, right? Because the law forbade it. The law said, no, that's not a thing you can do. But in James 2, I think it's verse 13, the Bible tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Or in Luke 18, Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. All right, so yeah, the law, under the law, that, none of that could work, but God says, yeah, I'm bigger than that. I'm going to show you something more important. And so he, that's still how he works today, that you know, if, if you can... 
forgive and reconcile, that is always uh, his preferred thing for us. We've made it all the way through one verse in Isaiah 50. Before we move on, there's one other thing I wanted to point out. because um, Yeah, he's talking about Israel and Judah, both of them kind of as being a bride. But uh, the Bible tells us very clearly that the bride of Christ is y'all. It's the church. And in the future, there's a wedding that's going to take place. Right now, we're, we're married, kind of. Right? We're engaged. Uh, in Revelation 19, verse 6, it says that, Then I heard the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And in the Gospels, there's a couple different parables that, that talk about this stuff, how the bride makes herself ready. Remember Jesus when he says, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house, there are many mansions, all that stuff. That was all part of the marriage ceremony and custom of the time. Um, you know, you would live with your parents until you were ready to be married, and you were ready to be married when you went and built a house for your wife. And even though you both knew that you were going to be married, and, and you kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, knew what day the wedding was going to take place, you still would kind of sort of keep it secret, and then you would uh, have this whole thing where you and all of the groomsmen, all of your friends would kind of parade your way to the bride's house, and everyone would see them coming, and oh, it's time for the, the wedding, right? And we're going to have a meal and a celebration and all that stuff. Um, you know, we, there's a few different parables that talk about this stuff, but that's how a, med, a wedding or a marriage took place at the time, and it's still the imagery we're seeing in Revelation 19, that we've been looking forward to this event when the bride is finally able to be home with her groom. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. So the, the white garments of the bride, he says, are the, the righteous acts of the saints. Every time we, we turn to idols, every time we turn to anything and anyone other than God first, uh, we're cheating on him. But every time we do something for him uh, with right motives, we're preparing our wedding clothes. All right, so we'll, I'll, I'll quit beating that horse. We'll go to Isaiah 50, verse 2. He says, Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? So that, that, that is a little clumsy in English. Basically, he says, why did, when I came home was the, my house empty? Is basically what he says. And do you really think I don't have the power to deliver you? 
Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. The one who can part the Red Sea. And you think that I couldn't handle this situation that you're in? Or that I would forget about you? I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, or the learned, your Bible may say, that I may know how to sustain the weary, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Remember, this is Jesus speaking through Isaiah, and he says, God has given me a, the tongue of disciples, or of the learned, uh, and Basically, he, he shows me what I'm supposed to say. And what I'm supposed to say, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Right? The words that come out of my mouth should help encourage and uplift and sustain people. Jesus says that's what the mouth of a disciple does. So if we're following Jesus... It follows that we should have that kind of mouth, right? 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, tells us that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It says the whole point of us getting together and me teaching and you listening and learning and all that stuff is love. A pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. But love is the first thing. Verse 6, he says, Some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Some people get so hung up on the learning, the knowledge, being able to win a debate and an argument, that they get puffed up and forget the whole point of the thing. And I've been there and done that and have the t-shirt. He says uh, that, you know, the Lord has given me the words to sustain the weary, uh, that I would know how to sustain the weary with a word. Let's read it again, verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. If you want a life verse or, or something that is just practical out of this whole chapter, there's your verse. He says, God gets me up early in the morning to tune my ear to hear what he has to say, to get my mouth ready to say what he has to say. He, Jesus got up early in the morning to hear from his Father. In Mark chapter 1 uh, verse 35 says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And we see it elsewhere in the other Gospels. Oftentimes, after he had worked really hard the night before, you know, healing people and feeding people, he still got up early the next day to pray. I've heard it said before, and I've found it to be true. Uh, it's easier, I think, to pray about the day to come and ask God to bless it 
than it is to apologize for the day that you just went through and ask for forgiveness. Get your day ready. You know, start your day right. Spend a little time in his word, listening to what he has to say, and say what you have to say to him. It, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. So he, he started his day that way. Isaiah 50, verse 5 says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Now, we've spent some time on this a couple times in this book, but it's worth touching on again. Whenever we see this expression, when we t- hear uh, open ears, or their ears are not opened, or whatever, we think, oh, they're not listening, right? That's a fair way to put it. In the Old Testament, though, people understood this to mean something different. An opened ear came from this. In Exodus chapter 21, uh, in Israel, under the, under the Mosaic law, you could... Uh, You could serve as a servant for six years, but the seventh year you had to be released from your bondage. So very often people would, um, you know, basically sign a contract to, you know, this is how I'm going to pay my bills or or repay a debt or whatever. Um, But sometimes people felt like, you know what, life with living in the home of this master is better than what I had before. I don't want to leave. Even though I'm free this seventh year, I don't want to leave. Being with my master is better than anything I can think of. So Exodus 21, verse 5, it says, If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. I and my family, we want to stay here with the master. Verse 6, Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. And very often they would put a gold ring in their ear. And this was the sign of a bond servant. You're saying, my life belongs to my master. And when you had your ear pierced with that awl, you were having your ear opened. And Jesus says here, the Lord God has opened my ear. I will not be disobedient, nor do I turn back. He says, I have chosen, this is, he's the master, and I'm going to follow. Isaiah 50, verse 6, he says, I gave my back and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I do not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Several times in the Gospels, we see it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. His disciples were trying to convince him, no, you shouldn't go there, they're going to kill you, And and he set his face toward Jerusalem. He was on a course that he was not going to change it. But he describes a few things there. He says, they strike me, uh, they cover my face, they spit on me, all, they, uh, I gave my back to those who strike me. Some of that stuff may sound familiar to you if you're familiar with the New Testament. I'm going to read a couple verses here. Luke 22, verse 63, it says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him. 
and beating him. And they blindfolded him. And were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who's the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Matthew 26, verse 67, says that they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. John 19, verse 1, says that Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. That's beating him with a a a flagellum. It's like a whip with bits of bone and rock woven into it. It would rip your flesh apart on your back, oftentimes exposing your spinal cord. Uh, They scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Seven, eight hundred years before that stuff happens, Jesus tells Isaiah, here's what's going to happen. Isaiah 50, verse 8, you know, he did all that stuff, he went through all that stuff because he loves me and because he loves you. But verse 8, it says, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. In Romans 8, we're running short on time, so we're not going to spend a bunch of time there. But uh, one thing we see over and over is Isaiah is sort of the Old Testament Paul, and Paul is the, the New Testament Isaiah. And so very often, Paul expounds on the things that Isaiah introduces in the Old Testament. And in Romans chapter 8, he really fleshes out what Isaiah 50 talks about. But I'm going to summarize it with just this one, word, uh, one verse, Romans 8, verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or who is against us? That's what Jesus is saying. I'm, I'm going to go through all this stuff. But behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is it that condemns me? If God is for me, who is against me? Yeah, I've seen people get that tattoo that only God can judge me. Have you seen that? I always laugh because I'm like, yeah. Like, for real, that's who judges you. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I get the sentiment behind it. I have to remind myself sometimes when I run into people that are just really having a bad day and they're wanting to make your day worse. And there's an old expression that we throw around, right, that hurt people hurt people. And so when we run into that kind of stuff, it's just a reminder that, oh, yeah, these are, the world is broken. People are broken. People are hurt. People need Jesus. God is for me. I can, I can deal with this Karen, you know. <laughs> Isaiah 50, verse 10. He says, Who is among you that uh, fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let's read that again. Who is among you that fears the Lord? Right? These are people who... They believe and they, they 
follow, they listen, they care about what God says, that obey the voice of his servant, but that walk in darkness and have no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Sometimes, as a Christ follower, there will be times of darkness and uncertainty. Right? He's the light of the world. We get, we get that. But there, that doesn't mean there will never be darkness in your life. There will be times of uncertainty, times when I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. When I feel like the people of Judah, like, like God's just forgotten about me. Or I've done too much and he's abandoned me. And Isaiah says, or the Lord says to Isaiah, if that's you, keep trusting. Keep leaning on me. Because if you're in the dark, that's where faith actually kicks in. Right? It's not faith if you can always clearly see the way. That's walking by sight. Right? If I can see every step to take, that's great. The Bible tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. That You've got to learn to trust me when, you know, like I told Abraham, uh, I want you to just leave your home, and then I'll tell you the rest. And he had to take that one step, not knowing what else was to come. I thought we might get into uh, the next chapter tonight. I don't think we're going to do it. But, uh, Psalm 119, verse 105, says this. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Yeah, there are going to be times of darkness, those are the times when we go back to his word, try to get as much clarity as we can, and then we trust him with the rest. Now, there are some folks who would rather not do that, right? Who would rather go, okay, it's times of darkness. I'm just going to light my own fire. Uh, I'm going to come up with my own rules. I'm going to figure this out on my own, do it my own way. Isaiah 50, verse 11. I'm going to read it out of the New Living uh, translation. It says, But watch out, you who live in your own light, and warm yourselves by your own fires. This is the reward you'll receive from me. You'll soon fall down in great torment. In other words, do it your way, and you're going to fall on your face. Um, been there, done that, have the t-shirt, right? Uh, so, that's what we've got for this week. Now, next week we're going to get into, um, well, I guess you'll have to come back next week and see what we're going to get into. But for now, let me pray for you. Uh, Lord, we thank you this evening for giving us the opportunity to study your word. We, we just pray, Lord, that um, for all of us that are, are struggling, that are, feel like we're in a time of darkness or a time of, of confusion, we pray that uh, your word would serve as a lamp unto our feet, that you would help us to see the way but Lord, more than that, help us to trust you and to have faith, to, to keep leaning on you and resist the urge to go back to old ways of doing things. Lord, we, we pray for your blessing on your people. I pray that we would never uh, feel like you would abandon us, that we uh, realize what we've, where we've messed up and just continually turn back to you. 
Um, Lord, we pray for your blessing. I pray this in Jesus' name. And pray you come and come quickly. And everyone said, amen. All right, ready? Break. <laughs>